Scaling down on a rocket reduces the mass of propellant more than it reduces the mass of all the other components, including the tanks that hold the propellant itself. That's why rockets today are fundamentally the same size they were in the 1950s. Межпланетный подкаст. Исследование космоса на благо всего человечества. Ваши хозяева в Норвегии и Англии. Мэтью Рассел и Крис Карни. Абсолютно and uh yeah just to just it's cold but it's very very sunny and beautiful and quite starry a lot of mars seeing a lot of mars at the moment which is nice ah yes um, i was out last night at a cocktail evening which was really really nice and uh yeah yeah one of the cocktails had mars bar in it and uh, we came outside and, no. I, and i did tell the story about helen how helen sharman Britain's first astronaut invented Mars ice cream or was involved in its invention. And I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, that's what she did before going to space. How cool is that? <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I went outside and it was it was one of those nights. I live very near a dark sky site and it's actually it's it the, the sky does get very dark and and uh, could, I could see the Milky Way and Mars. Yeah, crikey is it bright right now. It's beautiful, isn't it? Mm. It's yeah, it's so, really, it's so really nice. Beautiful. I mean, it even even showed up on a, on a crappy iPhone photo. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Yeah, I, I did. I, I took I took some photos with my um, my Pixel, and uh, yeah, it sh- oh. it showed up on that too. So uh, I was uh, I've not Apple versus Android. Who will it be? Android wins. Android wins. Android wins. The, I think our section of this is going to be quite quick this week. Chris, because okay. uh, I've I've not I hadn't I didn't get the chance. It's been a very busy week. I didn't get the chance to knock up a a science story. But fear okay. not, because I've got an interview with Elizabeth Howell, PhD, because she's got a new book out um, called Canadarm and Collaboration: How Canada's Astronauts and Space Robots Explore New Worlds, and it's out this week. But I interviewed her a couple Fantastic. of weeks ago. And she also wrote that book, uh, The Search for Life on Mars, with a previous guest, Nicholas Booth. So it was really nice to meet her because I've obviously talked about her before. And, uh, yes, it's a really good interview. So um, it, it kind of it works out. You, you don't have to listen to us. Yeah. It's us two bothering on too long before you get to uh, essentially a, a very good interview with a fantastic space journalist and um, all-round good egg. So for us, it's going to be swift and sexy, Matthew. Of course. This week, we had the Venus flyby of Bepi Colombo. Yes. But I think, yes. I think we should leave that for a week when I've had the chance to talk to the team and see what, see what results we, we got and what, and what happened. So I'm quite looking forward to Is your to lady that. on the inside? Uh, the, the lady on the inside, on the yeah. Inside. Lady on the inside. Yeah. Oh, so, yes. we, so we may even get the words words from her directly. Uh, next week, a Cyrus Rex that's been orbiting the asteroid Bennu mm-hmm. for a long time. 
It's empire state building sized. I love I love all those analogies to different objects. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah. It just gives you that sort of brealian perspective because it's so when it's just numbers. I don't know. It's more yeah, but when they, you like have a frame of reference is really good. Yeah, a good frame of reference is it's bread bin sized or microwave sized. I always find that quite useful. The, the, <laughs> but empire state building's a little bit confusing because of course it has more length than it or height than it has width. And breadth. Yeah. So well, obviously Bennu doesn't. It's a bit more it, it's it's not it's not umuamua shaped. So it, no. it would be better to call a muamua empire state building sized or you know, because it would have that sort of similar shape. So that so yeah. I would quite, So what else could we compare it to? Yeah, I, I mean what else I don't what, know. could we compare it to the Isle of Man? <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, no, more more the Isle of Lundy, maybe. But even that's long. Yeah. I don't know. It needs to be more Bennu shaped. But anyway, Fred Talbot's weather map. <laughs> it reminds me of when I used to listen to a Pink Floyd song, uh, which was actually one of the guests' uh, songs, I believe, uh, where it's learning to fly. And the last, the last lyric is uh, "tongue-tied and twisted, just an earthbound misfit," which is a beautiful, mm. you know, sentiment yeah. about flying. And um, uh, but I, as I used to mishear it as earth, <laughs> tongue-tied and twisted, just an earth-long biscuit, and thinking, God, that's a, it's a, that's a weird, me- it's a weird measurement, earth-long, because again, it's earth-long it, it, biscuit, yeah, though. earth-long biscuit, <sighs> bloody hell, tongue-tied and twisted like an earth-long biscuit. <laughs> Try dunking that in your cuppa. <laughs> anyway, what is Osiris Rex up to? It's about to attempt scraping some material off Bennu next week. And so there's going to be NASA coverage of that next week. So that should be properly worth tuning into Tuesday, October the 20th. So, yes, mm. do that. Now- well, I love that, just scraping across it, like scraping across an Earth-sized biscuit, just... A Bennu-long biscuit <laughs> yes. that weighs the same as the Empire State Building, yeah. I tell you what, it's very cool this week. So Kate Rubins, who happens to be one of my favourite astronauts, mainly because of the faces she was pulling when she had to share an office with Trump and he was talking, and you could just tell she was slightly uncomfortable. Uh, Kate Rubins, on her 42nd birthday, no less, uh, flew Mm -hmm. up to the International Space Station with Sergei Rushkov and Sergei Gudzveshkov. Oh, pesky. They all went up uh, on October the 14th, Expedition 64. Uh, they join mm. Expedition 63, meaning I think she's the only American astronaut that's that's uh, that's flown on their that's actually launched on their birthday. Now, I've got, I've got to check ah. that. Definitely the only female um American astronaut, but as far as I can tell, the only astronaut that has, I'm sure readers will correct me. Um, yeah. Listeners, even. Or maybe readers, if you're reading, reading this directly <laughs> right. from the blog. You could be, yeah. Well, of course, I won't be writing that in the blog, so that's very confusing. Mm. By the time I write the blog, I'll have checked the fact. And you'll have been inundated with uh, with, with corrections. So Kate Rubin, she's a, she's a, a doctor in cancer biology. And mm. uh, yes, and she's already the first person ever to sequence DNA in space. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And she's potentially the last American ever to fly to space on a Soyuz. This might be it. That that of might course. be it. That, that might be it now. America might just go, bye-bye, Rogozin. You're so annoying and so ridiculous that we don't really want to buy seats off you anymore because we've got the old Falcon 9. 
But the oh yeah, uh, oh yeah. But uh, Falcon Nine's got a few problems actually, and so the Crew One members who are supposed to join them for Expedition Sixty Four, they're going to be slightly delayed. So there's going to be only only the three of them on the space station. There's six at the moment. There'll be three when Chris Cassidy and the and Anatoly Ivanishin and Ivan Wagner. When they come back, it's very confusing the Russians because they they all share the same names. Like two Sergeys have gone up this time, and the other two have both got Ivan in their name. It's pretty annoying. Oh, you know, yeah, very confusing. Yeah, the Americans actually. at least the Americans do the courtesy of not having any repeated names. I know, and that's that, that's that's one of the the main things that they do to just stop us getting confused on the podcast. How many people do you think have been to the ISS now? I think it's in the region of about 170. Bit higher? 240. Oh, 241. Yes! Oh, my God. Nine, like, that was pretty yeah, good, wasn't it? From 19 countries, and they represent research, more than 3,000 bits of research, done for 108 countries. So that's not bad, is it? It's a wonderful thing. I think it might be one of my favourite things ever. ISS and and I think maybe there's a little bit of sadness to the fact that the that the Yanks won't be launching with the Ruskies anymore because I mean there's a there's a, an, an aspect of collaboration there I know there's a lot of money exchanging hands but do you think when it becomes sort of segregated again do you think that might be increase sort of division in some ways on the ISS they they clearly all you know all parties get on and just that whole idea of look you have to work together to make something like that work it's got to be a good thing right it has to be a good thing yeah but actually there's there's a side to this that's that's worth considering there is a, an, a, an old russian cosmonaut who's been talking about how the russian segment of the iss is really a bit too long in the tooth and that mm. um, really they were designed for sort of 15 years of use and now of course the um, iss is coming up for the 20th anniversary of uninterrupted human presence in space. And so, Incredible. yeah, which is amazing. And, of course, so so the Russian stuff apparently is all starting to really show its age. And, of course, this, this week there was an oxygen supply system failure in the Russian segment. And so the American one is the one that's sort of taking over, and, and which is lucky, obviously. Obviously, with things like that, they have redundant systems, but... So the crew aren't actually in danger. Russia have been talking about all these new launchers that they can't possibly build because they clearly don't have the money to do it. So it's all it's all a little bit sad for the for for the Russian for the mighty. But they want to get a uh, Lawrence Llewellyn and Bowen up there. Give it a makeover. Imagine him up there with his collars and cuffs, just like oh. I just think he could uh, you know really spruce the place up a little bit. That's all. Yeah, I d- it does seem a little bit chaotic when you look at it. It's hardly feng shui, is it? the uh, international space no. station. So I mean talking about the Russians, right? The, there was there's been this real near miss this week. In fact, it's only just happened and uh, I'm I'm thankful to report that it looks like they missed. But get this, there's Cosmos 2004, which is um a defunct Russian navigational satellite as far as I can see is hurtling around at about 16,500 miles an hour, so at about 900 kilometres orbital speed. 
and no slouch. No slouch. And there was a Long March 4C rocket stage, upper upper stage from 2009. That's also up there, but going in the other direction at 16,500 miles an hour in orbit. And they are going Oi. to miss, or did just miss, by about 25 meters. Ay, caramba. Moribajad, the, the first guest of the year, he he reckoned it was going to be about 70 meters, but the reports coming in looked like about 25 meter miss. So that is, you know, in terms of the error if, of judging where that where that object is, you can see actually it could have well have hit, they could have well have hit each other. And of course, with a combined yeah. speed of over 30,000 miles an hour, that's going to be a lot of debris. In fact, a lot of debris in just about the worst place at this like really valuable orbit height. And I noticed that the, at the IAC, they um, one of the talks was about this list that they've generated of the 50 most worrying objects. Oh, the MWO. <laughs> or MWO 50. Yeah. They're mostly Russian objects, 43 of the top 50. The top 20 are all upper stages of Zenit rockets, which is ridiculous. Oh, and then in at number 20, yeah, no, in at number 21. Well, this is because they, they all went up in the 90s and the very early noughties when, when before restrictions really started kicking in. But, but still, they must have known it was a problem. And uh, at 21 mm. is Invarasat, Envisat, sorry, which is um, a European, massive European Earth observation satellite. That's a major problem because it, it's, they've lost control of it. There is no propulsion on it anymore. We've talked about that before because that has lots of events every year where things go near it. And eventually something's going to hit it and it's, and it's going to be really, really bad news because that thing's going to create a lot of debris. So what's the um, what's the worst case scenario? Well, well, I mean, the worst case scenario is you get a couple of those events, and it starts to kick off Kessler syndrome at that particular orbital height, and 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 yeah. obviously a big spread away from that orbital height because of the energy smashing bits in all directions. But so that just means you can't use that orbit. And and if you go back to the the, the very first podcast of the year, Mari Bajar. You know, he's very concerned about it, and I think we all should be concerned about space debris. And I, I did actually speak to um, uh, the European dude in, in Darmstadt, and he was sort of saying, yeah, you know, they think a Kessler event has already started at certain orbital heights. So it's all, it's not great. And and again, there doesn't seem, <laughs> it's a bit like COVID. There doesn't seem to be a particularly great solution immediately on the horizon there's no vaccine for it if you like the the, the idea to, to sort of go up with a with a big net is just not really there is well it? well I mean, you know yeah, these things are as, <laughs> whatever happens they're traveling at sixteen thousand odd miles an hour so they're all traveling ridiculously fast so whatever you send to to get them has to do the same thing which means you have to expend an awful lot of energy just getting each individual piece of equipment i mean you would think right you've got envisat sitting there it's, it's at number 21 we, they need to do something about it so why don't the europeans like launch a mission just to deal with that one object well it turns I mean, it just turns out it's insanely yeah. expensive but i'd imagine if they yeah. did if they did it with one object and say right we're going to use all the technologies that were developed with things like remove debris 
Um, we're gonna we're gonna use those technologies, and we're going to deorbit Envysat. Well, that'd be amazing because at least it'd be like we really are trying to sort of tackle this problem. Yeah, and so how many USA objects are up there? Well, in the, in the top fifty list, none. So congratulations, America, because. <laughs> That just means that they've taken this a lot more seriously than everyone else. I mean, Europe has got quite a few bits in there as well, like Ariane 5 upper stage is, is at number 39. There's a lot of Chinese stuff mm. in there. And um, so, you know, it, it's good on, good on NASA. Well done. To be fair to them, though, they haven't launched for a while. <laughs> well, that, that's a bit – I mean, that, that, I mean America always wins <laughs> – I pretty much consistently win the amount of launches per year. That yes, they haven't. Yeah. They haven't, and also they are launches. Yeah, I was going to say people, actually, so the, yeah, the, yeah. the people launches don't generally leave space junk, of course, because you're. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously, there's some Apollo space junk up there, upper stages and things like that that are still up there. That have, you know, people talked about turning into wet laboratories where you sort of get these bits of space junk and actually use them for something else. You know, there's mm. a lot of stuff mm. up there that That's... you could sort of go right. Let's just let let's fit out this uh, upper stage as a as a, a laboratory and climb inside. But it turns out Amazing. it turns out it's a little bit harder than that. <laughs> there's just... no, no George Clark couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really difficult to do. Um, but check this out. This is one of my favourite news stories of the week, and it came complete as a surprise to me. So Alan Stern, who. Lots of people, lots of the listeners know as the, the the sort of the boss of the New Horizons mission that flew past Pluto. Um, mm. He he has been selected to fly aboard Spaceship Two, so he's going. So what? he's going to go into space, which must be an absolute dream come true for him. So he's he's been one of those people controlling robotic missions and he himself gets to go to space and it's not like a sort of thank you he's he's just come up with an experiment they think this is worthwhile doing so nasa are sort of saying yep this is a worthwhile experiment doing you go do it and yeah wow. and it's just like that is great. it's all about looking out the windows of the spaceship too and seeing how good it is for um astronomical observations in these um in in these suborbital flights that's what we need to come up with a good experiment, really, don't we? <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. And actually, talking of things like Virgin Galactic, of course, we had New Shepard flying this week as well after ten months of not flying. So, did you did you see any of that footage? No, I missed it. No, I heard about it. Though, it's it's yeah. it's always quite cool because the the landing of the vehicle always looks very different to Falcon Nine. It it, it hovers more. So yeah, whatever mm. it's using. But I, what I didn't realize, I, I think it was using different sensors this time, because there were some NASA payloads on New Shepard. So there's like twelve commercial payloads, uh, and, and NASA had developed this sort of sensor suite that's used that they they want to develop for moon landings, for both robotic craft and for human craft, and and it's called Splice. Safe and precise landing, integrated capabilities, evolution, technology suite, oh, splice. Love a good acronym. Yeah, and so this time round, it had a Doppler lidar, some navigational systems, and things like that. And that was what was apparently used to control the New Shepard's booster's descent. 
So that's interesting. I don't know how much of the descent was controlled using the the splice, but I'm quite surprised that it wasn't all Blue Origin stuff and that that NASA have got some stuff in there as well. So that that I thought that was really interesting, and I, and I kind of want to get more to the bottom of that. There was other experiments as well. One called Lily Pond, which is Space Labs um, hydroponic chamber for edible aquatic plants. It sounds like a lot of cannabis connotations going on <laughs> yeah. there, but I'll let you carry well, on. Well, is cannabis an aquatic plant? I think more like watercress. That, that's that's the uh, that's yeah, oh, what I read yeah, there. Delicious. But then, you know, that's the difference between you, me and you, Chris. Give me that kind of edible any day. I'm uh, certainly not a fan of the others. There was a whole bunch of postcards, apparently, to inspire kids so that you can get a postcard from this STEM organisation and the postcard comes, and of course the postcard's been into space, so that's quite cool. Oh, nice. That's so cool. I wish I'd got something yeah, like that when I was Yeah, I, I want a space postcard. So if you're out there, send me a space postcard that's been into space. And thermal protection as well, so the, the, the thermal protection system for New Glen. And let's face it, when New Glen flies, if New Glen flies, that will be insanely exciting to see the difference between Falcon 9 landing and a New Glen landing. Definitely, definitely. And it's just incredible what they're doing. Like, it's just, it's pretty mind blowing. But I can't believe that we, that we haven't, we still really haven't seen anything really from Blue Origin when it comes to things like New Glenn. But suddenly it will be here and it will be like, oh my God, there's this massive rocket and it's going to be doing a landing. It'd be interesting if that happens before SpaceX's Starship and the, and the Super yeah. Heavy. Well, we'll just have to see. Of course, New Shepard was designed for people. And and it's like, well, when when are people going to go up on the new Shepard? When well, we've just heard that Alan Stern is going up on um, Virgin Galactic, and also mm. Virgin Galactic are going to do, be doing some space flights from Spaceport America later this autumn. And if they do another one after that, Branson himself says that he's going up on a flight after that. So we're only sort of two, That's... we're only three flights away from seeing <coughs> old Uncle Dicky go up in the um yeah. go up and go to space it's incredible this this sort of this 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 race between these 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 private companies is just so exciting and like you know but i i am really excited to see what's going to come from old jeff yeah as i think he's got he's got the he's got a little, a little bit more under wraps in it you know like with they like, as i was listening to you know the wonderful book look up um, you know about the fact that like SpaceX really is is a lot more about the PR, uh, whereas you know, um, uh, so Jeff Bezos is just sort of a little bit more under wraps with what's yeah, going but- on. So all of a sudden, I think there's just going to be like this incredible just revelation. Well, well, well exactly. Like, oh my. Well, God. I mean, you'd hope so, yeah. wouldn't you? I mean, like he's he's got more money than Musk, but it's odd, isn't yeah. it? Because at the moment, let's face it, Musk's sort of just. I think it's described as head down, plow through the line um, approach is clearly winning because he's got working rockets. He's already the market leader. He's already the market disruptor. He's already working Mm. on Starship and we see it and it's flying around. Yeah. I mean, clearly he's he's winning the, he's winning, winning the public relations battle, but he's also, he, that's it. He's the established rocket company, as Eric Berger said a few weeks ago. It's like that. That that's it now. And so Jeff Bezos, 
when he arrives, he has to disrupt it with something amazing. So if New Glenn suddenly just rolls out of the rolls out of the big um, Blue Origin factory and and it starts flying and it's like holy holy monkey, someone's actually got something that <laughs> that, that, that is that is actually capable of competing with um, Elon Musk. Which will be great, actually. Yeah, Let's face yeah. it, you don't want just one rocket company ruling them all. So I suppose we should no, we should that's root the thing, a is competition bit. is what drives yeah, exactly. it, isn't we it? We should it's root like for it's Blue Competition Origin needs to drive yeah. it. Yeah. Now yeah, talk yeah. it's the new <coughs> the new the new Cold War is financial, <laughs> but it's not a Cold War, obviously. It's but that 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 was the motivating factor mm. in the in the sixties and then and the seventies. And now the, the motivating factor really is to Make make some dollar. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and actually, what's happening over in Europe? The sort of big news in the European one is that Ariane six, all of the engines involved with Ariane six have now been fully developed and certified. So last week we talked about the the P one twenty C solid rocket motor having its final test. The Volcane two point one had its final test, but now the Vinci upper stage engine as well. So all all of the engines for Ariane six are, are now up and going. But of course, Ariane six, I don't think will will be competing in the same market now as SpaceX Falcon nine. I think you know it can't compete. It's just not going to be as cheap. So it's much more about Europe having and the ability to have its own its own launch vehicle for for european centric projects where we don't have to rely on another nation or or the europeans don't have to rely on another nation to get their equipment up into space so i think that's where it sits yeah. until until uh, ariane and and whoever get their act together to make something like new glen maybe and and like falcon 9 is so that's so yeah, it's very exciting. It's an exciting time. Now, here's one really interesting thing that relates to the quote that we started with. And I've talked about autophages before it was. An autophage was at one point Space Word of the Week. Space Word of the Week! It was Podcast 89, by the way. So, yeah, it, it, and it's a rocket that eats itself. In other words... If you go back to that quote at the beginning, one of the reasons why rockets are all the same size is if you start reducing their size, the thing that falls down the most is the is the propellant. That the smaller the rocket mm. is, disproportionately the the smaller the propellant gets for actually getting that rocket into space. So there's a kind of sweet spot where if you get it too small, you get a useless rocket. So that's why it's hard to make these smaller rockets for for launching smaller payloads cheap enough because they still have to be pretty big. But an autophage gets around the problem of the fact that the tanks and the outside of the rocket and the engines remaining the same size as you reduce the size and the propellant getting much smaller by, by... by that being part of the fuel. So the actual outside of the rocket also gets used as the fuel. So that so the rocket engine is burning <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> which which Oh, it sounds like it sounds worrying to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, obviously it's harder to do, but if you could perf- perfect the technology, it would actually make total sense. You wouldn't have to re you wouldn't have to refurbish the rocket. You would just literally have a rocket engine that would eat its way through the entire body of the rocket 
and 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 not, you wouldn't be carrying unnecessary mass into space other than the engine itself because the because all of it all that unnecessary mass was turned into propellant and fired out the back of the rocket and used to uh, as a reactionary force to get you out into orbit so it See, I went to a festival once, and the food was served on a on a plate that you could. But well, there you go. It was an autophage plate. Oh no, but the no autophage. Yeah, plates. but the plate doesn't eat itself. Yeah. No, true. <laughs> so that's, I don't that's suppose a good it point. is an autophage. <laughs> it's more of a fun. <laughs> but I, I bad example, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I I hear what you say. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, so yes, this it's a Glasgow team have just won some money from the UK Defence and Security Accelerator, which is curiously only one letter different from NASA. It's of course, DASA. Hmm. <laughs> have given them ninety. Yeah, DASA ninety grand. They got for the this to have a look, and they've um, there's a, 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 a young chap called Grishtof Bizdik. And he has come from NASA as a Glenn researcher, propulsion engineer from Glenn, Glenn Research Center at NASA. And he's doing his PhD studying this autophage at the University of Glasgow. But they're also going to be testing it in at uh, Kingston University at the Roehampton Vale campus, which I used to drive past all the time. Uh, oh, I used to ride yeah. around there when yeah. I lived down in um, lived down there. I used to ride to Roehampton, lovely yeah. little place. It's got some very uh, nice um, Corbusier esque uh, architecture going on as well. I, I think you've tried to tried to beat one of my Strava sections around there on your on your push bike, which I'm sure you did comfortably. Oh no, I'm not sure if I beat you because like, you know back in my you're the man with the those fire fire legs. That's what they call you. Doctor Harkness from not to be confused with the Doctor Who character. I was getting excited about this story, but the one bit I find dubious, which makes me go, ooh, come on, is he says, hey, demand for these type of launches could reach as many as 3,000 a year by the middle of this decade. <laughs> a potential global market value of a hundred million pounds. I do, I don't think I don't think there's going to be three thousand launches a year. That that seems how many how many a day would that does, be? Yeah, I mean you'd be launching ten a day of these autophages. It's like <laughs> God, it would. So yeah, so that that instantly made me think. Come on, this this doesn't sound right anymore. So and and no, and it, it can't. It's, it's impossible. Ten a day, ten a day, and you only get a hundred million pounds. It's like yeah. that seems pretty miserable return on investment, if you ask me. Yeah, it's not a great return. I think it's going to be costing about that a day to, <laughs> to, to launch them. But at the same time, can you imagine, like, right, you know, we have left off and off it goes. They're like, right, let's get the other one on quick. I mean, I, I love the idea. <laughs> We've got nine more to get through here. <laughs> quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the idea of autophage because it does get round the pesky part of the rocket equation and having usable mass into space so it, it kind of seems like an obvious solution but yeah that that kind of put me off the whole idea because it just seemed a little bit unreasonable but um yeah maybe maybe we need to get dr harkness yeah. on we need to get him yeah, on the I'd, show to, uh, to, to justify yeah, that I, well, one <laughs> I, i'd quite like to get christoph on and see what he says yeah because obviously yeah. he's the guy doing the phd and it'd be you know he's you know he's a serious dude from Glenn Research. He knows what he's talking about. So, you know, 
that's, yeah. it's always worth investigating these particular things. And actually, sticking stick to a bit of UK news, the UK, of course, signed up to this week at the IAC, they signed up to the Artemis Accords, and um, which is, yes. you know, joining America on their moon mission for 24. And Bridenstine said in a statement, with its signing, we are uniting with our partners to explore the moon and establish vital principles that will create a safe, peaceful, and prosperous future in space for all of humanity to enjoy. Lovely. R- Rogozin, not a fan of the Artemis Accords. He, he calls it too American-centric. Uh, Bridenstine had some kind of knockback to that. But yes, the UK apparently is going to be building parts for the service module and habitation module for the Lunar Gateway. Which is uh, so the UK mm. have committed sixteen another sixteen million pounds for the first phase of design of those elements. So you know the UK space agency has been splashing the cash this week. Excellent, excellent. So when are these going to be built? Are they going to be built probably somewhere in Surrey, won't it? Well, there's there's of course the Oxford Harwell campus, which will be involved with it, I'm sure. And there's Glasgow is very well placed for that kind of stuff. So you know, there's lots of different places dotted around building space stuff. Lovely. Bits of it might be Surrey. You're right. So we go straight to the interview. Absolutely. Looking forward yes, to hearing this. This is Elizabeth Howell over in Canada. Aikotai, the interplanetary podcast, putting the ace back into space. I'm joined on the podcast by Elizabeth Howell, renowned space journalist, and we've obviously talked about one of her books before when we had Nicholas Booth on. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here um, again, in a sense, because obviously Nicholas was talking about both of us before, but I feel like I know you already through him. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, so you've got a book coming out. It's about the Canadians in space, correct? Am, am I right in saying that? Exactly. All the Canadians in space. So it's not just Chris Hadfield, obviously. There's a passel more of people, and uh, I got to talk with just about all of them, and it was such a privilege. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, I've read the foreword, and it, look, it looks like you had an absolute blast doing it and, and and were very privileged had some really privileged access as well so tell us about how it how the project started how long ago would did you start this book and and how, how has it progressed well in a sense it started when i was a teenager and saw the movie apollo 13 when shortly after it came out on vhs and uh, i wanted to be an astronaut so eventually i morphed into a person who writes about space i went through a few university programs became a journalist i took uh, space studies at the university of north dakota and along the way i've been following the canadian space program very closely because obviously i'm canadian and i have a lot of pride i read lydia dotto and chris gainer and all the big canadian space journalists when i was growing up and i thought maybe i could be somewhat like them. So along this journey, I was part of a group that now is called the Canadian, uh, sorry, Science Writers and Communicators of Canada. And Tim Lockheed was the president when I was first a student, a baby student, barely had any sort of uh, credibility in the industry. And he really believed in me all through this journey as I was growing up and learning my way and meeting these people. So he joined a company called ECW, which is, as it turns out, the publisher of this book. And he wrote me two years ago, just about uh, around Canadian Thanksgiving. And he said, listen, you should be the person to write the next book about the Canadian space program. And I'm going, seriously, I'm in my mid thirties. I don't really know if I have the maturity to tackle such a project because obviously most people who write books are in their forties or their fifties. And so he passed me on to a somewhat skeptical Jack, Jack David, who's the uh, owner of the company and has been since the 1970s. But 
generously, I was asking around for some recommendations and a certain person called Chris Hatfield uh, came along and gave a recommendation. And then at that point, they began to pay a lot of attention, which was really, really lovely. So then what happened was this was happening around the time that I was starting to get ready for a trip to Kazakhstan to see our our latest Canadian, David Saint-Jacques, lift off into space. And so that journey is covered in the book. That's actually how I started with being in Kazakhstan and sort of being a little bit worried because the last mission had had an abort. And then what I do is I go back through the history of the Canadian space program and talk about all the great Canadians that have been involved. And I try and give a sense of what's happening on the ground as well as up in space. So uh, hopefully that serves as a pretty good introduction to what I do and why I feel this is so important. No, no, absolutely. I mean, because I guess, you know, over here in England, when you think of Canadian space, I I have to say the very first two things you think of is Chris Hadfield and Canada. <laughs> yes. But, but I know it's obviously Canada get, gets its way into the into the title of the book. So obviously it, it it is an important part. So how did you decide what what were the important bits and did you did you have to leave stuff out? Because presumably the Canadian space sector is I, of massive. course you have to leave stuff out. I mean if you want to talk about Canadian space, you could talk about in detail all of the engineers, for example, who was part of the APRO program. And obviously some of them were uh, migrants from the UK into Canada. So there's that connection right there. I touched upon it, but Chris Gaynor, who I mentioned earlier, already did an excellent book called Arrows to the Moon. So I went, I don't want to tread on that ground. Another thing I left out too was what the Canadians are doing in space in detail. So whenever an astronaut goes up on their mission and spends two weeks or six months or whatever the situation was i didn't do a blow by blow of you know day 14 this is what so and so did up there because i really felt that it's been covered elsewhere what i wanted to do instead was to talk about more the in-between stuff so all of the management positions that they were taking on the ground in addition to the work that they were doing in space so uh it really was interesting because for example uh julie payette who is uh as i'm speaking here the current governor general the representative of the queen in canada she actually was working on artificial intelligence programs they weren't quite called that back then but she was doing that and sort of helping to program some of the computer systems that were working in the shuttle and uh, of course i wanted to touch upon the amazing canada which you've already mentioned and so i talked a little bit about its development and that had to go into the engineering side of it so away from the astronauts the reason that Canadarm is so important is the Americans were so impressed that so they put it on the second shuttle flight, only the second one. The thing was barely certified for flight, right? The uh, space shuttle. And yet they had this robotic arm and they were testing it out. And then they said to us, hey, uh, we love this arm so much. Do you want to fly some astronauts? And our country was saying, sure, sure, we'd love to have astronauts. And so within about a year, Mark Garneau was up in space. It was a pretty incredible trajectory. And uh, ever since then, we've been building more and more Canadarm. So we have a Canadarm 2, which works on the space station. And now there's going to be a Canadarm 3 working near the moon in the in the 2020s sometime, we hope. Yeah, I mean it's it's extraordinary. What was it about Canada? What was it, uh, what was it about Canada? Almost said Canada. What was it about Canada that that gave them this expertise at, at robotic arms? What 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 was it? It's because we're so used to working in remote environments anyway. I mean, uh, unlike England, we're not a very densely crowded country. We have to do a lot of things remotely. So one of the things that we've done, for example, in recent years is remote surgery because we have a lot of Indigenous people and uh, remote communities in the northern parts of Canada. And there aren't that many doctors up there, unfortunately. And that's something that probably needs to change. But in the meantime, 
What we can try to do, for example, is we can use an arm to do robotic surgery in the brain, which has happened before under a few circum uh, sorry, supervised circumstances. And so it really was this reliance on having to be a remote country, having to connect everybody through satellites and through ground stations that made us turn to space very, very early in uh, space exploration's history. We were actually the third country to send a satellite in space, if you can believe that. And we're a tiny country, right? You know, right now we only have about 35 million people. And back in the 1960s, it was much, much less. And so the story, the book that I have, also talks about the journey of Alouette One into space. And uh, it was such an early program at the time that when they were bringing the satellite down there, first of all, they had two. So they had two satellites, two planes, two sets of engineers. It was all backup. They arrive there, they get the thing set up, and then this silly fruit train keeps delaying the lunch. <laughs> Just, what is this, right? Like, it sounds so archaic these days, but no, there was, there was a literal fruit train that was going through the area and preventing Alouette One from going up on time because of uh, safety considerations. And eventually, most of the Canadian journalists went home, except the famous Lowell Green, and he was the only one who stayed and actually saw that first satellite go. So, uh so yeah, I would just would say it's because we've had to be adaptable in a very remote country. Uh, and uh, obviously my family came from Europe many, many generations ago, and we had to sort of come here and be pioneers and work in these forests and remote areas. And Canada in many ways is still like that. Not always. Like I obviously live in a big urban city, but there were a lot of areas of Canada that are still very wild and remote and hard to connect to unless you got space. So mm. that's why we're in it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I, I suppose in, in a way, ec exploration is in Canadians' genes, right? Exactly. Because of the people that came over from Europe, I mean, I don't have quite that history down as much as the space history, but I know that there often was a feeling of, I want to try something new. I want to actually go see something new and try something out. Now, obviously, there were a lot of problems associated with that at the time. There's the, uh, the whole colonization issue that has been affecting colonies all over the world, not just in Canada. But on the more positive side, it meant that we had people here that were willing to innovate. And in some cases, not all cases, to work with the local communities to make that possible. And and um, I don't know quite that much about my family's history back then, but I do know that we were immigrating from England around the 1700s, which is quite a dicey thing to do back then. Obviously, you get on a ship and you're not quite sure if you're going to get to the other side. And then when you get there, sometimes the Canadian settlers would receive land that didn't have good land. You know, it just would be full of rocks, really difficult to till. And then uh, we've got like major mosquitoes out here. <laughs> and that's not a good thing, you know, when you're trying to uh, set up a little homestead. And uh, basically that's what most of us came from here. You know, we arrived from Europe or big countries like that. And we founded really, really small towns in Canada. And the typical Canadian, I think, still has that kind of small town mentality about them for that reason, because uh, we're a small country. We have a lot of small towns. It's very easy in most areas to drive out even half an hour or an hour from your city and be in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I feel very lucky to be so close to nature. But obviously, again, that's why space is so important, because I've got a cell phone and it stays in touch so that if I get really, really lost, I can always call for help. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's it's it's almost extraordinary, isn't it? Because because you you feel as though the future of space exploration is going to be full of people like your relatives from the from the sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, like taking these enormous risks into into just absolutely horrendous conditions. Yeah, I've I've talked to, to people about this before, just that the risk that people were taking to do these things was was absolutely incredible, wasn't it? 
Exactly. And I want to do uh, bring this back to the astronauts that went up there, because in many cases, they were doing tests that helped pave the way for the International Space Station. And so we had astronauts go up and run missions that were supposed to be simulating the very schedule that astronauts would have on a longer mission. So even though they were only there for maybe a week or two, the effort was to try and get them doing experiments on a very regimented schedule. And the reason that's so important is that we have a space station, not just to float around and take pictures. And as we know, from Chris Hadfield play guitar, they do that all in their spare time. What they're actually doing for about 10 hours a day usually is, well, first of all, they exercise. They have to do about two hours of exercise just to stay fit. But then they've got a, a list of experiments and they got to go through it. Boom, 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 and get it all finished to sometimes as tight as a five minute increment, get everything done in there. And over the years, they have become so productive and so independent and so good at working out with their colleagues on the ground, including in Canada, obviously, that um, typically a crew can plow through about 200 experiments in six months, which is an extraordinary amount of productivity if you sort of think about it per day. And um, we have made a lot of innovations along the way. So Canadarm, for example, Canadarm 2 was not designed initially to grab cargo ships. Nobody imagined that. Everybody thought that it was just going to be helping with space station construction and working on spacewalks. But then when this need came for more stuff being shipped up there, water and food and experiments and supplies, Somebody came up with the idea, you know what, we can actually use it to snag the ships until they have a new docking ring to uh, to attach to in the late future. And so that was something that was innovative. And uh, I really do feel that it's from this close collaboration between ground and also space that we have all of these changes. Another one I should mention very briefly, too, is that at the beginning of the program, no one imagined that Canadian engineers would be working basically in the Montreal area, not quite Montreal, but nearby, in space, like they literally control the Dexter robotic hand and a few other experiments and things right from that mission control. They're nowhere near Houston, you know? <laughs> so it really was through a close collaboration, which is why that's also in the title, between Canadians, between Americans, between ground, between space, between places all over the world as well, that made this possible to have such a strong space program today. That's what I really, really believe. You, you mentioned before we came on air that one of the things that you wanted to tell was the story of the astronauts in between their their missions and what they actually do. And it is something that's always intrigued me because <laughs> like whenever you hear an interview with an astronaut, obviously it's always yeah. about what was the launch like, what was the landing like? And even that's not to do with the work, is it really? That's the sort of, <laughs> it's like asking exactly. a, a doctor well, what the bus is. Well, let me bring up a, uh, a current astronaut because we have four in our core right now. And so I mentioned David who's gone into space. So David was selected in 2009 and along with him was another fellow called Jeremy Hansen. Now, Jeremy has been sitting there very patiently for 11 years and he hasn't gone into space. And so the first instinct from an outsider is, what have you been doing for 11 years? You must be only going up in space and that's the only part of your job. No, 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 no. Okay, there's a lot more <laughs> to being an astronaut. So let me explain a fraction about what Jeremy has done. He's done a lot in 11 years. One of the most important things that he's ever done for the program actually is he took charge of the training schedules for a whole crop of new astronauts. So back in 2017, when two new Canadians were selected, there were actually about, I want to say maybe about 14, 12 to 14 new astronauts that were coming up through the program from various countries, you know, including NASA. And Jeremy was the one who was making sure that they all got through their two years of training. And this means that he had to schedule things like spacewalk simulations in a pool. They had to do robotics training. They had to do isolation training. They had to do group training. They had to learn Russian 
And I've learned a bit of Russian and it's a lot of work, right? <laughs> so he was working with all the individual expert trainers in these areas to make sure they were running on time. And he actually called himself a mother hen because another thing that he had to do was to inculcate these new trainees into the culture of NASA and teach them everything that needs to be done. So that alone took up a lot of his time. Another thing that he was working on too was trying to get the spacewalk sequence finished to basically fix a dark matter experiment in space called AMS. This experiment was failing. It wasn't actually designed to be fixed in space, but everybody thought it was so important that they said, you know what? We fixed Hubble. We've done it several times. We can surely fix this experiment. I just love that can-do of the Americans, right? You know, like, it's going to be fine. We're going to get it done. So Jeremy was part of the lead group of people actually simulating the spacewalk in the pool, figuring out the procedures. And then he was the one talking the spacewalkers through, you know, from the ground. So that's only two things that he's done. I haven't even talked about all of his Capcom and mission control, all of the uh, public outreach that he's done, all the behind the scenes work he has talking with uh, Canadian administrators. Like he's a busy, busy guy. And I talked to him about this. You know, I said, you know, I, I recognize that you are not just being an astronaut in space, you're doing things on the ground. And how is that? And he basically said, it's great. I'm really busy. I have a lot of things to do. It's fine, you know? And just to be clear about why he hasn't flown for so long, Canada's only a 2.5% partner in the International Space Station. So what that means is we have a 2.5% share of experiments and a 2.5% uh, share of flights. So when we have somebody go up on a flight, it means that we only have that small fraction. And if you only have about 12 people going up to space a year, which is how it was for basically a decade with the Russians, um, that's why we only were able to send somebody up every five to six years. The hope is, though, that's going to change because you probably were aware of the SpaceX commercial crew thing, right, that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> there was a little bit of publicity around that. <laughs> These are going to be bigger vehicles. They can carry more astronauts. They can possibly fly more often. And that would mean that presumably Canadians can again fly up more frequently, maybe not once a year like in the 1990s, maybe every three or four years. I'm just coming up with a number. But that would certainly be better. And I would think that Jeremy, with his experience, likely would be the next to go. But we don't know, right? Fingers crossed. Yeah. I really want the guy to get up there eventually. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it, it is, it's got to be what some of the most heartbreaking stories, isn't it? That the astronauts that almost get their um, chance to go to space and it doesn't quite pan out, which is quite a lot of astronauts, isn't it, really? Yes. Um, so we've had a couple in Canada. There was a, a fellow that actually pulled out shortly after he was named as an astronaut. He just didn't feel it was the right thing. Um, a couple of pulled out for medical reasons. We had uh, Ken Money, who was along with the program for a long time. He actually was pioneering basically the vestibular system. So how you're sort of balancing yourself in space. He was a medical doctor and he was selected and he was an astronaut for many years. But then after about a decade, he just got too old. And they just said, you know what, he, he just made the decision that it was best to retire and to do other things. And then, uh, of course, there's a story of Roberta Bonder, which I talked about in the book. And uh, that was another situation because she flew once in space, did an amazing job, was a big inspiration for young women like me, because I was only, uh, I wasn't even 10 at the time, right? Not that she's up there doing her thing. I got to meet her when I was a kid. It was a big wow. deal. And then she just left. She left the program and she disappeared and we didn't hear very much about her from the space side, although she ended up founding a foundation and she took pictures and she went to all of Canada's national parks. All the astronauts are like this. They never retire. They actually go on and they do something equally amazing in another field. So I was talking to her about this and I was just saying, you know, what happened? And it turned out that uh, there was a problem. 
And I never quite got to the bottom of exactly what happened, but essentially she was told that she was going to have to leave the program. And there were different accounts about why this happened, but she says that she never was properly told what it was. She just was told that she had to leave. And uh, if you read the book, you can see that there were a lot of different disputes about what had actually happened. And the thing is, it's now 30 years ago. So when I was calling the various agencies, they didn't have all the information at hand. And then the one person who did have information, you'll have to sort of read through and make a judgment about what Roberta was saying versus what this other person was saying and then uh, come to a conclusion because uh, it was a rather sad story, I think, in the end, no matter what exactly happened because she was such an inspiration for women. However, I must say that we have had two other Canadian female astronauts. One has flown in space, obviously, Julie Payette, and then we have uh, another one, Jenny Sidey Gibbons, who uh, hopefully will be going up in the near future. So uh, it's interesting all the stories that come out sometimes, huh? Yeah, no, that that, that that's a very intriguing story. I'm, I can't wait to get to to that bit. I know, I know it always sounds quite, yeah, it's a little bit soap opera-esque, but, but yeah. I, it's... Yeah, well, you have to realize that when the astronaut goes into space, and I don't mean to sound like it's a big ego trip because that's not how they are, but it's their moment. You know, they've been working for anywhere from, let's say, four to 10 years, perhaps even more on the ground to get ready for this mission, helping other astronauts, doing other things, uh, participating in the engineering of the program, and then they get to go up. And that's what, I don't want to say that's quite what they strive for. It sounds wrong. It sounds like they don't want to do anything else but go in space, but that's their time to kind of get a bit of payback, I would Mm. say, for putting in all that hard work. And so when it doesn't work out for whatever reason, you get reassigned, you have a medical problem, or uh, in Roberta's case, you're told to leave the program, it's quite a turnaround. You know, you have to sort of move into another mode and decide very quickly what you're going to be doing next. And uh, I mean, there have been a lot of obstacles along the way. We know that uh, Chris Hadfield from his book, he had a major surgery that uh, threatened his ability to go into space. Uh, Dave Williams, another astronaut, he actually was faced with cancer for a while. And so he had to sort of step back and deal with that. And often they're doing it quietly because uh, these are private medical matters and you don't want to be sort of broadcasting your status, so to speak, to the rest of the world. So um, that's what makes it so difficult. You're often doing this sort of in private and also there's a little bit of that cachet that's sort of I'm getting that payback now by going into space. And then when it doesn't happen or it gets delayed, you really have to move yourself quickly. I suppose the best way I could put it in a more normal public sense is imagine how we all felt around March or April when coronavirus was really coming in. And we all had plans, right? The kids were going to be in school. We were going to be on travel. We were going to be going to our normal workplaces. And then all of a sudden, no, there's no way we can do this. And you have to shift very quickly. And that's very, very hard mentally and in some cases physically as well. And now there's all these new protocols we have to put into place. I'd say that's sort of a similar amount of chaos and uh, difference that we have to sort of think about when we're trying to imagine what it must be like for someone who's supposed to be in space that can't get there, right? You have to sort of think differently and think better, I suppose. Uh, Use your new modality in the most positive way possible, even though it kind of (laughs) sucks, right? Because that's where we are right now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a that's a great analogy. I mean, I I always think you obviously if if you want to become an astronaut, <laughs> you want to go to space. It's, 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 yeah. it's, but but and but the, the, I, I suppose the really good thing about becoming an astronaut, if if that's what you decided you wanted to be, you had to do all sorts of things that genuinely just made you a better person. Full stop. <laughs> so if you don't exactly. make it to space, at least you. Become... I want to say that um, I've been fortunate in my life. I'm a space journalist. I've gone to launches. I've talked with a number of astronauts through there, and I must say that these are some of the most pleasant people I've ever spoken with. They are just so team oriented, and you have to be. 
Because if you're up there and an emergency happens, instantly you have to go into what can the team do to make this work, right? So they are trained and they are trained and they are trained. It's definitely not that right stuff movie or uh, Space Cowboys where it was very individualistic and people were competing against each other. I mean, there might be a little bit of that, but for the most part, they're just going, you know what, we need to do what's right for the team and right for the program. And for that reason, whenever I talk to them, they are just such nice people. <laughs> you know, I wish that we had more of them in our everyday lives sharing and looking for a way to help the community rather than just to help oneself. And so it's sort of funny. I think that the program kind of has this dichotomy, right? Because as you pointed out, you want to go to space. It's a really cool individual thing to do. But on the other hand, you want to do what's right for the program. And sometimes the two don't quite come into the same line. Or you might have to adjust one before the other goes up there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that it's, yeah, it's a very yeah, it's a very interesting balancing act. What when you were researching the book, when you were writing the book, was there one specific thing that you discovered about the Canadian space journey that surprised you or you were like super proud of or super shocked oh, by? Yeah, um, there are many, but actually it was an early day. So um, I was fortunate enough to get to go to the offices of the National Research Council, which is different than here than in the United States. But basically, it's a scientific agency that used to be in charge of the space program. And they have a small bit of archives, so not all that many, but a few manuals, a few pictures, a few newspaper clippings. And so I was there for a day, and I was going through their archives, looking at the space patches, just going, wow, you know, this is really cool. And then I stumbled across a set of stories. And the stories were about the Apollo 11 astronauts, the first moon landers, coming to Ottawa right after they had finished their moon landing. It was probably about November, December at the time. And what I thought was really interesting about that story was, well, first of all, a bunch of uh, people had come that had been on the moon and were sort of doing a goodwill tour. But also it served as an early impetus for the Canadians to start to get involved because it was not long after that that they were starting to talk about getting involved in an international space station, which started in the 70s and the 80s. Also the Canada, obviously, was sort of born around that same era. So it's almost as though these three people who came, and I realized they just were visitors and only here for a couple of days, it was sort of part of a larger movement, I would say, to make Canadians more active in the space field than they already were. There was sort of this idea that a possibility could come. And on a more personal note, um, one of my good friends and mentors, uh, Peter Kalamai, was actually attending all of these various events where the Apollo 11 astronauts were there. There was a dinner and other things. And he was fortunate enough as a reporter to get to go. And unfortunately, he died not too long after I discovered this information. And so I've always wanted to ask Peter, you know, <laughs> what was it like? You know, uh, can you tell me a little bit about it? And um, now I just had to sort of look through his words and take the best that I could from the stories. But it's just kind of cool to think that I know somebody who was there. And he was such a humble fellow. He was a really good mentor for young Canadian journalists. He never even mentioned it to me. But I would have loved to have given him a phone call and maybe in the week afterwards to go, hey, Peter, I just found this out. And I'm sure he would have had a few things to say because he was a very, uh, fiery personality and really had a lot of really good and backed up opinions, scientific opinions about how things went down. And so it was just kind of cool to notice that personal connection. I knew someone who was actually there and that this was sort of the start of a lot of things in the Canadian space program. And yeah, that was really, really surprising on both a professional and a personal level. And, uh, you know, good on you, Peter. I wish I could have talked to you about this, but thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for doing it. <laughs> well, well, fantastic. Have you got like a hero that you would, a space hero or a science hero or a journalist hero that you would that you could bring back from the past and sort of show them what's going on in the modern day oh my goodness you know i'm actually thinking about the uh the greek scientist hypatia female scientist who uh yeah i, I really think that she's a fascinating figure and did a lot for 
bringing up the education of all peoples back in her day. And I think she just would be fascinated by what was going on. She'd love to get into sort of the mechanics of things. And for her to actually see space in real life as opposed to in theory, I think would have been amazing. So somebody like her, and also to show her that women can play a good part in the program because obviously she faced a few challenges in her own life with that. Well, yeah, I'm just trying to think, is she, does that make her the first sort of STEM ambassador? I would think that she would be one of the first, exactly. She's At least she's yeah. one of the first that we know. Unfortunately, obviously, these records get corrupted and lost over time, but it's definitely one that we can look back to and say, yeah, she was one of the very first in there. And uh, it's just like she's an inspirational figure, and I would love to bring somebody like her or from ancient Egypt or from Rome or even just an ordinary little girl that didn't really get to do much that was famous but just worked in her family. Hey, look at this. You know, women get to do much different things today than back then. What do you think? You know, and uh, I would love to hear and understand because obviously they'd be speaking in ancient greek or latin <laughs> uh, um, we, we, we'd have the yeah we'd have the tardis uh, <laughs> translator exactly, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got a spotify song playlist is there a piece of music that you would want to stick on it it can be space related it's not allowed to be david bowie though. um <laughs> one that i actually have uh there are a few that are coming to my mind but i think one that i really like that is sort of space related is uh pink floyd's learning mm -hmm. to fly you know, I found it was really inspirational when I was growing up because it was talking a lot about uh, flying, you know, in general, the act of flying. But of course, when you get a little bit older and you listen to it, you realize it's a story about change and it's about how to appropriately deal with that change. And really what the fellow is doing, you hear sort of in the background during one of the uh, guitar solos, is, is um, he's going through procedures. He's got some ideas about what to do and he goes through the procedures and then he finds himself in a new realm, which is actually flying and feeling like he's doing a good job. And I think that, you know, certain times such as these, I hate to sort of hmm. keep using that phrase that we've all heard too many times, but we're facing a new world. Let's just be plain about this. Things are a lot different. We don't know how long it's going to be this way. We don't know how it's going to change, but there are certain things you can fall back on in your own life that are important. And I really believe that it all comes down to your family, your community, you know, the people that you really hold close to you. And you take that little circle and you work your way out. You know, you try and find a personal approach that works for yourself and works for the people immediately around you. And then you bring it out to your community and your workplace and the rest of the world. And uh, I think that learning to fly, even though it was done back in, I think, the 80s, it really shows part of that. And uh, I think that's a good approach for anybody during a crisis. So I hope that was helpful. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's, a, that's a brilliant yeah. choice. Do you know what? I, I, I used to listen to that song all the time because I bought moment, it's Momentary Lapse of Reason, isn't it? That, that, the exactly, album. Momentary Lapse of Reason. Yeah. It's an excellent album in general, right? Yeah, but, I, uh... I, I bought it at the time and used to walk doing my paper round when I was about 14 or 15 or something yeah, like yeah, doing yeah, my yeah, paper yeah. round with it on all the, because I, I had it on cassette and once you had a cassette, that, that was stuck in your Walkman forever. Exactly, and then you were able to walk around. I'm just, I'm just old enough to remember that era where you could bring around cassettes, although uh, obviously when I got a bit older, I had CDs and stuff and yeah. MP3s, which is wonderful. But uh, yeah, and I actually did see one of the uh, the singers of Pink Floyd in Ottawa. He came a couple of years ago and that was such a privilege because my parents grew up with them. I grew up with them and then uh, they're still active. Yeah. So that's another inspiration, right? It shows that you can keep on having a career even though you're way past retirement age. That's yeah. some would deem it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And Dave, Dave Gilmore is still sounding amazing as well. So thanks very much for coming on. And thanks again. It was so nice to meet you again. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive chris yes if i were a listener to this podcast yeah what could i possibly do to enhance my enjoyment if that's possible after listening to the podcast well do you know if i was really enjoying this and i was able to type or indeed use a voice activated search i would probably go for interplanetary.org.uk 
That is rather special. And of course, you could, again, use your voice or your fingers to type in patreon.com forward slash interplanetary if you wanted to get even more involved. Yes, that sounds like a bargain to me. <laughs> um, Chris, what are you doing this weekend? This weekend, I'm going to a, a, a very nice sculpture park up on top of a hill in Oslo. And then I'm actually going to watch the derby. I'm not a football fan at all, but I've got a feeling it's going to be an interesting one. So I think the Merseyside derby's on the Ooh. on the cards. So a couple of pints in in a, in a little bar in Oslo, and you know, uh, very lucky to be here where the pubs are open. Um, and uh, yeah, spend some time with friends and family. How about you? Well, that is very confusing, isn't it? Because of course I'm from Birmingham and support Liverpool, and you're from Liverpool and don't. Yes, so, that's but, true. But, and, and of course, it was <laughs> the the football for for anyone who's interested was was a horrific result for Liverpool fans a, a couple of weekends ago. So, um, in fact, weirdly, it was a Birmingham team that beat them. <laughs> so, yes. especially yeah. horrific for me. Yes, that will be very interesting. So, I, I I also shall be keeping tabs on it. Oh, and also though, I might I might, uh, I might get to meet my new nephew. Uh, the little nephew Ferdinand oh. was born this week. But uh, obviously, he's only just going home today, and we haven't even been able to see him in the hospital because they still have restrictions like that here. So, uh, yeah, so little Ferdinand, uh, welcome to the world. Ah, welcome to the world. Welcome to the planet yeah. as it as it yes. makes its way round the solar system yes. and the galaxy. Oh, yes. yes. What? How, <laughs> ex- how exciting. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if he'll lovely. see. I, I wonder if he'll see interstellar craft. I wonder if he'll be alive when aliens of... make contact. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous of him. Hang <laughs> on, do you mean aliens haven't already made contact? What what about all those <clears throat> videos and you know autopsies? No, that that you do realise that the, the X Files wasn't a documentary, don't you? No G- I want to believe even even though Gillian Anderson is is a very good actress, it, it Yes. She was only acting. It wasn't she wasn't actually real. I've got to start reassessing what I believe is reality and what isn't. <laughs> you certainly do. Uh, and talking of that, <laughs> uh, I think we better wrap this this little pumpkin up. Sad to go, but it's been lovely. It was supposed to be a short episode and it's still 40 minutes. How did that happen? <laughs> I love it. Absolutely brilliant. I can't wait for more space fun. Oh, actually important announcement. Go on. The podcast will come out on a Monday, not a Friday from now on. So you're going to have to wait a week and three days for the next episode. Yeah, and you can sort of uh, edit at your leisure, making me sound yeah. a lot smarter than I actually am and that yeah. type of thing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're all we're all going to ultimately benefit from this. Okay, TC. Bye-bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats. Bye, Spudcats.